The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Uh, I want to remind you again, everyone, that uh, we have an incredible team uh, ministering on our behalf behind the scenes. There's so much going on, uh, and I just am grateful to God for the various ways. You know, seven, over seven years ago, when, I, when you called me to be your pastor, you didn't ask me if I was a Winnipeg Jets fan. And I didn't tell you that I was a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. And this, this illustration may go way over many of your heads, but last night, Mitch Marner scored a goal in a shootout at overtime. And, uh, and it was contested because the goalie thought that he had stopped and so on. And uh, so now, for a goal to be good in that kind of context, the puck must be continually moving ahead and the player must not have any goalie interference. And so when it was uh, reviewed, they decided it was a good goal. What's my point? My point is that I believe that God has us continually moving ahead in this building project. I see God's hand all over this thing. And I can see his hand in us, working in our faith as we move forward. And I see that if there's any interference with the process, it's not from inside here, it's from out there. It's, it's city, you know, and banks and, and different things that we're, we're figuring out. But you know what? It's, it's, there's no interference here. The body of Christ is unified. It, 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 the board, the, the different committees, there's just an incredible agreement. This past Tuesday, the staff had a, a full-day retreat out at Providence College University and uh, we're grateful to the hosting that Gary and Tori and Cody and Marla and, and uh, Maddie was there too. And we had a great day. And one of the things that came out of that day was there's absolutely clear alignment of vision and purpose in our staff. Now, that's important for me going ahead into this new year. That, that, that the staff, the board, our leadership is aligned. We believe what God is doing. And so I want to encourage you to keep prayer uh, faithful and to keep looking forward uh, to the surprises that God has for us as he meets us in the needs that, that we have. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts? And we are in Acts chapter 1, and uh, I'm so glad that we're going through the book of Acts this year. In the book of Acts, we find in chapter 1 a time in the life of the early church when Jesus has just ascended into heaven gone back to the Father, and uh, we await His second coming. And Jesus has said one thing to His followers. He said, wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And they are waiting. And so we pick up the chapter in verse, chapter 1, verse 12. And if you're able to stand with me to hear God's Word, do that now, please. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up again. Among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. 
He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language a keldama, which is field of blood. And for this, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. And so he was added to the eleven apostles. May God bless his word. You may be seated. We're going to look at this scripture in, in about 20 minutes or so. But before we do so, I want to share with you some things that I believe are critical to understanding what a, what a witness is. I'll begin by just taking a look at some research that was done in Canada in the last year or two by Lifeway. And uh, let me just share some statistics. This is done uh, 1,086 people from Protestant churches in Canada formed this research. And they found out that spiritual matters do not tend to come up as a normal part of daily conversations with other Christians. 48%, almost half of the people, agreed. So in other words, we're not talking about Jesus that much with each other. Then we move on and we see that relationships matter. Uh, It says here that I developed a significant relationship with people at my church, 68%. Then... We read, I intentionally make time in my schedule to fellowship and interact with other believers. Less of a group, 40%, not 68. Then we see, I intentionally spend time with other believers in order to help them grow in their faith. Again, we go down to 28%. Let's keep going. It says, in this past six months, about how many times have I shared how to become a Christian? 78% of people said, I've never done that in the last six months. And how many times have we invited someone to come to church or a service or a program? 59% said, never done that. Never done that at all. We go on to see the spiritual giftings that are part of our understanding. I intentionally use my spiritual gifts to serve God. 45% said, yeah, that's that's what I do. Um, I intentionally give up certain purchases so I can use that money for others. goes down to 33%. And then finally, I intentionally try to serve people outside my church who have tangible needs. About two-thirds, 63% said I do that. So what is the conclusion that we might come to in just a real quick survey of those statistics? Well, what it tells me is that people that are attending church in Canada, in Protestant churches, they're in relationships, and the relationships matter both within the church and outside of the church. They've got a conscience about them. They've got God's heart. They want to use what they have to share with others and so on and help. But we're not talking about Jesus. You know, we're, we're living it, but we're not talking about Jesus. And so I want to talk about that just briefly before we get into talking of the text that we've read. I want to share five things. They're in your 
uh, insert in your bulletin five things that I think are critical to being a fruitful witness, a witness again, firsthand talking about who Jesus means to you. And so first of all, I want to say, as we go through these, think about someone you work with. Think about someone that you live on the same street as or someone you go to school with. Think about someone, I asked you last week to put the names down of an awakening soul that Christ has put in your pathway. Someone that you are connecting with. Maybe this is what you need to think about. So first of all, I want to say, as you think about that person, I want you to know that God was there first, not you. Okay, that's number one. God was there first, not you. Um, He's been preparing that life before you ever knew them. God is never joining us. We are always joining God. God does not need us to build Him an on-ramp into somebody's life, you know. He's not that needy. God's got His ways. And so you don't have to do that. Um, We get in the way. We get unrelaxed. We start stressing and trying to make things happen if we don't understand that God is already at work. Reggie McNeil says it this way. He says, we go into marketing and sales (laughs) instead of trusting God to be doing His business. Someone said it this way. We said, when we work... God rests, and when God works, we rest. What's my point? The point is this, that the lion's share of witnessing, of talking about Jesus, is not on you and I, it's on God. God the Spirit will lead you. God will lead individuals you talk to who somehow will self-declare, where then you have an opportunity, and God opens the door, you just have to be ready to walk through that door. Secondly, God has others doing His work, not just you. You're never alone. You never fly solo when you're talking about witnessing Christ to somebody else. It takes a child, to, a village to raise a child. It takes, it takes a village to raise a person into Christ's likeness. God is always working in team. He's always got someone else in that life. We don't necessarily find ourselves working concurrently with them, but God's got other people that are working in that life as well. We need to remember that. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, God made it grow, and the one who plants and the water waters are nothing but only God who makes things grow. You see, that's the point. We have our task, and God understands that, and He expects us to simply be faithful to that. Leads to our third point. God does His work over time, not all at once. How many of you go out on the May long weekend to your backyard, and you put the seeds in the ground on the Friday, and on the Sunday you come back looking to reap the harvest? It doesn't work that way in physical terms, and it doesn't work that way in our lives, if you think about your own life, and it doesn't work that way in the spiritual journey of other people either. And we must not think that we've got to close the deal in one conversation that we have with someone. If God opens the door for us to have conversations, I forget the statistic, but some people have testified that it takes many conversations before someone is finally going to get and understand God is at work. The Spirit blows. It's a mystery. We need to simply understand that it's not our place to push and to manipulate and to try and control 
We, we really mess it up when we start doing that. Third, fourthly, God asks us to be faithful, not fruitful. Focusing on the fruit of your exchange with unbelievers is a very dangerous thing to do. You will either become proud or you will become discouraged, one or the other. Focusing on the fruit is a dangerous thing to know because you don't even know if you're just meant to cultivate or water or weed and someone else is going to come along years later and they're going to reap a harvest for the work that you've been doing. And, and you don't know how God is at work in those, in those places, those unseen places of a person's resistant heart or stubborn will. And uh, many of you, it's easier to know that because you know how long it took you to, to see God break down those walls. So we need to focus on faithfulness, not fruitfulness. What does it mean to be faithful? Well, to be faithful in word, I mentioned last week that it has two parts, just like the cross has a vertical and a horizontal. There's objective truth and there's subjective truth. There's objective truth in the sense that there is the historicity of our faith. There is, a, there is the reality of Jesus Christ who lived 2,000 years ago, who, who was crucified, who was buried, who was raised to new life. And you need to share the historical truth. That's the gospel, that God laid our sin on Christ. That's the historical truth, the objective part of being a witness so being a witness is not just saying there's a God and that God loves you somehow. And then the subjective part is, okay, so, so what, is the, what is that historical truth? How has it impacted your life? How do you speak that truth in love and how do you bear witness to the fact that you know Jesus lives? You know that song, you asked me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. You can't argue with that one. And so what is it? For you, why is Jesus real to you? You know, in John 15, the, the, the night before Jesus was crucified, Jesus taught more about the Holy Spirit that evening than any other time in his ministry. And, he, and the primary and central metaphor that he chose to use was this, the whole metaphor of the vine and the branches. And he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. If anyone abides in me, he will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, it didn't say, he did not say, if anyone abides in me, he might bear some fruit. No, he said, if anyone abides in me, he will bear much fruit. So you and I, as the branches of this whole metaphor, cannot focus our attention down the branch toward the fruit. And think we're going to be more fruitful by trying to be more fruitful. Can, can you imagine that? A branch trying to produce more fruit. If we focus rather up the branch toward where we are connected to the vine, where our relationship with Jesus Christ is real and daily and dependent, and we do as best we can to open up the fullness of the Holy Spirit flowing into our lives you don't have to worry about the fruit, folks. It's going to come. People are going to be coming to you. People are going to be asking you for the reason for the hope that you have. You will not have to make it happen in the flesh. This is what Jesus Christ has taught us. And then finally, I want to say that God asks us to witness out of love and joy, not out of fear or guilt. A primary way that the enemy, who is called Satan, 
the accuser, the primary way that he robs us and he deploys his demons is addressing our attitude of our own life in Christ. He will try to bring condemnation and fear and guilt upon you and thereby neutralize your witness. He will try to get you so preoccupied with your own performance, whether it's privately in holiness or publicly in testimony, he will try to get you so preoccupied with your own performance, you are not occupied with just living as a branch on the vine in the fullness of God. And, he's, and you've lost the battle before you've even entered it. Instead of living by the grace of God, we often start living back under the law of God. So you know what happens? You know, we, we, what happens is that we already have three enemies lined up against us, and they're taking shots. The first enemy is the world, this fallen system that permeates culture around us. And then there is the flesh, that, that inner force of sin that will be with us till we lay this, this body down and we receive a new glorified body. And then there's the devil who is the accuser of the brethren. He just, he just constantly standing on your shoulder, whispering in your ear, you're not much of a Christian. And so what we have done is we have added to those three enemies one more enemy. And guess what it is? It's the law of God. How could something that God created to be so good be used in such a bad way? But you see, what we do is we, we let the law of God line up alongside all of our other enemies. And we let it condemn us as well. Instead of depending on the righteousness of God in Christ, living as the child of God that I am set free because of Jesus, I get enslaved all over again. Instead of having the world, the flesh, and the devil alone, I've got God's law against me now, and God's law was never meant to be against me. It was meant to point out how far I fall short and then run to Jesus, recognize that in Christ He has taken all the requirements of the law upon Himself and went to the cross and went to the death and then liberated me from ever thinking or having to try to live up to them in the flesh. This came to me this past week in a powerful way. I've been in Romans chapter 8 this past week. And in verse 15, where Paul says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which you cry, Abba, Father. And, and as I was reading that over and over again, I, I asked myself, what does this word again mean? You have... Not you, but you've received the spirit, sorry, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a, a slave again to fear. What's this again all about? Well, what's Paul, what Paul's talking about, if you go back in Romans, is that, that you and I, all of us, came out of enslavement to sin. We, we were sold as slaves to sin, and whether you, whether you think you had any liberty to, to, to save yourself or not, you're, you're deceived if you think that way, but you were a slave to sin. 
And then God, in his mercy, saw your condition. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, and he died on the cross to, to liberate you, to free you from that sin and to free you from all the just requirements of the law that stand against you. And he liberated you, and he said, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so instead of me, instead of me enslaved all over again with the fear that I'm not really living up to the law, the, the word of God, I don't do it every day, Instead of living under the fear that, oh, I'm not really pleasing my Heavenly Father, I fail Him every day, with this idea that the anvil of the law is always hanging like, like a thread over my head, just waiting to drop till I screw up sometime, without that fear again, I am meant to instead live in freedom of Jesus Christ, knowing Him, grace. Of course you're not a very good Christian. There's only been one good Christian, and they put him on the cross. And it's his life in us that will ever produce anything that resembles him. And so instead of standing in that court of law every day, and Satan standing beside you, using the law of God to condemn you and accuse you, you need to hear the verdict. God has already pronounced the verdict about you. And you know what he said? He says, free in Christ. Free in Christ. There's nothing else that God requires of you. Free in Christ. That's it. That's the gospel. There's nothing else. No, no guilt motive. No, no got to live up better stuff. God does not want you enslaved all over again. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by the yoke of slavery. You see, instead of that yoke of slavery, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are heavy burdened and laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Don't take the yoke of the law. Take the yoke of grace. For my, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you can find rest. For your soul. And that's what God wants for us. All grace and all freedom. A heart overflowing. An experience that comes out of insecurity into confidence. Out of accusation into peace. Testifying about this experience is going to be way better. Than testifying out of an experience of condemnation. If we, if we, if we understand the wretched condition of our souls. How far we missed the mark how Christ came in his mercy and lived his life perfectly, took our sins, left them buried in the grave, paid for us in full rise, rose again from the dead, conquered for us, in us, and as us, setting us free from the law of sin and death by the law of the, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And if we, if we speak out of that experience, it's going to sound differently than if we speak out of condemnation, guilt, and fear. You see, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, not from the download of the head. 
It's out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. So if your experience of God is that he's this punitive father always looking for you to screw up, if your experience of God's word is that it's the law that just shows you in the mirror how awful you are, if your experience with Satan standing beside you accusing you every day and night, you're going to testify one day to some unbeliever. You're going to sound awfully unattractive. I don't think that's the way God wants it to to happen. God has shown me that I've forfeited a lot of joy in my life. He's shown me that I've allowed the enemy to accuse me and to condemn me, and that I've lived tons of days and hours in my life under a blanket of condemnation, fear, and guilt. And I have sought to witness for Jesus so many times with that. As a younger man, I, I, I just was wanting to share Jesus so much, and I had such a complexity of guilt and joy and all this mixture in my heart, and I would, I'd get on a plane, I had to talk to the person beside me, or else I'd get off the plane feeling guilty. I was sitting on a bus, I was, whatever I did, someone knew I met, they had to hear about Jesus, or I wasn't a good Christian. I'll tell you a story that happened in Thunder Bay. I, I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but so this was before the days of Kijiji, and, and, and I, we had this utility trailer that, that we had to sell. And um, so I, I, got a, I got a phone call, and a person came to my backyard. I showed him the utility trailer. We made the deal. And then I said to him, if you'll come to church this Sunday, I'll, I'll knock 50 bucks off. So the next Sunday, right in the front pew, second pew, there was that family of four for 50 bucks. And I preached my sermon, and then I went out and shook hands with them. I never saw them again. I have no idea if that was motivated by the Spirit or the flesh. I think it was the flesh. You know, I, I, I think that the point is this. The point is that if we as followers of Jesus, the ones who know him best, end up opening up our mouths and it sounds like a history lesson, or it sounds like a debate, or it sounds like a lot of airy-fairy philosophy, and it doesn't sound like life-changing, I live and breathe Jesus because he's my life, and you got to know him. Transformative, you know, in the day and in the here and now. If it doesn't sound like that, I'm not sure if it's right witnessing. Jesus was so clear about this thing called joy. Paul says to the Corinthians, we work for your joy. What does that mean? Well, actually, all the staff of White Ridge Baptist Church, if you wanted to summarize their job description into one line, it would be this. We work for your joy. Punto. We work so that you will be just gaga joyful in Jesus. And if we can get that happening, I don't think we're going to have to worry about any other equipping. Really. John 15, same uh, passage about the vine and the branches. Jesus says... You know, you can have my joy. Joy is better advertising for Jesus than guilt, isn't it? Isn't it? Do you think so? 
He says in John 17, this is his last prayer. John 17, 13, he says, I'm coming to you now, Father. Here I come. Just got to get past the cross, but I'm coming. And I say these things while I'm still in the world with these guys so that they may have the full, what? Full knowledge. Full apologetics. Full answers. Question? No. So that they might have the full measure of my joy. What qualifies you to be a good witness? We're going to hold a seminar in about a month or so. The Emmaus Road message. Two evenings. It's going to be good teaching. It's going to be helping us focus on what is the gospel. How we share the gospel. This is good equipping. I, I hope you can come. I really do. It's not primary though. It's not primary. Primary is you've got the Holy Spirit in you. Primary is you, you have a relationship with the vine, Jesus Primary is that you're, you're listening and watching and waiting for him. That's primary. You know, there's an incredible story we're going to be talking about in a couple months in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John, or sorry, James, Peter and, yes, Peter and John. Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 are out ministering and uh, they end up healing this man. And, and then they get more attention drawn to them. So they preach the gospel. They share the good news. And then it gets too much attention, so the Jewish leaders arrest them, and they, they bring them before the Sanhedrin council, these 70 men in their long robes. And they say, give an account of what you're doing. And you know what they say? Peter and John say, we must speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, I think that's a good witness. Isn't that what a witness in a court of law does? I'm going to speak about what I've seen and heard. And then it goes on to say that when they look at these guys, it says this. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, and they realized that these were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. There's your equipping. You've been with Jesus. Really, it's that simple. Spend time with Jesus and you'll, you'll get to saturate so much of him in your life that somehow along the way you're going to be a good witness, full of joy, and God's going to use you. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, pray also for me that I may, every time I open my mouth, declare fearlessly the message of Christ. Now, why did he ask for that? I think he asked for prayer because fearless witnessing is not in the flesh ever. Fearless witnessing is always by the Spirit of God. You and I need that too. Well, let's move to our scripture this morning. Uh-oh. That was a good introduction. <laughs> Let me share these three points real quickly because I think there's something in them that, that I want you to hear. First of all, I want you to see these three things that the church did while they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. And the first thing I want you to see is that this was a conglomerate church of 120 people that would not normally get along, okay? Uh, you have Peter who denied Jesus. You have fishermen, tax collectors, po politicians. You have Thomas the doubter. You have James and John who were the two that argued which of them was going to be the greatest. You have Jesus' mother and his brothers who were always take, trying to take Jesus away 
you know, from the crowd. You have Mary Magdalene, the one that Jesus delivered with seven evil spirits. And you got them all just thrown in as a church. Kind of like what happens at a funeral. You've been to a funeral and you walk in and you don't know anybody. Why? Because everybody at the funeral knows the deceased. And they don't know each other. That's kind of what this early church looked like. All these people that were reclaimed lives that Jesus had ministered to, and now all of a sudden they're in the same church together. And they had to figure out how to love and get along. And that was one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit could come on that group, was they were, they were ready. Do you know something? You don't have to, in, a, in, a, in White Ridge Baptist Church, there might be people that you look around and say, well, I wouldn't normally be friends with them if it wasn't for Jesus and church. That's okay. That's all right. But, but because you know Jesus and church, you eat together and mission trips together and you, you, you minister together and you seek to pray together and you do all this stuff together for a greater cause because of Jesus. And it didn't have to mean that your Myers-Briggs lined up with somebody else's either. It just is. Secondly, they were constant in prayer. And we see this, I spoke of it last week. And then thirdly, they, they were led by the Spirit. You know, they replaced Judas. But you know, they didn't replace any of the other apostles when they started dying. The next apostle that dies is James in Acts chapter 12. But they don't replace him. Why is that? Well, it's because he didn't defect. He didn't leave the faith. James would be resurrected on the day of resurrection, and he'll reign with Jesus Christ with the other apostles. But Judas defected. And, and we see this incredible thing happen in the early church. Lest you think that this was a group of believers that sat on, on logs and sang kumbaya and had a serendipitous, uh, uh, extemporaneous experience waiting for the Holy Spirit, I want you to know that what had to replace Judas was someone who had been with Jesus from the beginning. Why is it that the apostles' teaching was so important in the early church? Because their teaching became the benchmark of all teaching up until our day. That's why we follow the New Testament. Because it's important that truth have objectivity to it. Do you know that the Oxford Dictionary declared the word of 2016 post-truth? That's the new word for the Oxford Dictionary in 2016. Post-truth. We live in a post-truth society. Post-truth is defined this way. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotional and personal belief. So truth does not matter as much anymore. We see it in Canada. We see lawmakers making legal what was never legal in Canada. And now, based on legal things, we have people saying, well, if that's lawful, maybe it's also moral. And maybe it's okay with God, my Creator, and so on. And we see a whole generation being led down the garden path of post-truth. This is my body. I'll do with it what I want. You know? And we could talk about marijuana, assisted suicide, we could talk about a number of things that are becoming lawful in Canada. But the truth of God has something to say about that. It says in the Bible that 
the wrath of God, Romans 1.18, is being revealed against those who suppress the truth in wickedness. We need to be praying for our country. Oh, friends, let's uh, stand together and conclude our time. Would you stand with me and let me pray for us as we conclude our morning together? I know there's been a lot this morning that has been shared in the Scripture. I trust that the Holy Spirit will take just that part that you're meant to hear and that before you go out from this room today, you'll just remember that part because that's why you're here to have uh, connected with that Scripture. Let's pray together. Spirit of God, now we, we just thank you for being among us today in our worship and sharing. Lord, we ask you to help us to be your witnesses empower us. Help us to be willing to wait for you. Help us to know what it means to, to share your truth, the objective and the subjective part of that truth. Make us a church, Lord, that, that waits upon you and seeks you and knows you. Make us a church, Lord, that opens our mouths to share of your love. And even this coming week, Lord, would it be in your will that several of us are going to have opportunities, that, doors that you open Help us to know how to read that in, in the spirit and not in the flesh. And uh, make us witnesses. Thank you so much for your spirit. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you, Father, for your incredible love that we can never, we can never be, be taken from us, Lord. We thank you for who you are. And we ask your blessing on us as an assembly in Jesus' name. Amen. People of God, go in his peace.